thinking about infectious versus non-infectious. And when you're thinking about infectious, um, each of the first four, uh, depending on the population a bit, um, contributes about 20%. So a man coming in with urethral discharge, about 20% will have necessary gonorrhea, about 20% will have chlamydia, about 20% will have mycoplasma genitalium, and in 2019 there was a new FDA-approved assay to detect mycoplasma genitalium. In a heterosexual population, you're going to see about 20% trichomonas vaginalis. And then those other 20%, a variety of other infections could be herpes. There's been uh, several um, case uh, reports and series about herpes causing arthritis, and also oral flora, streptococci, anaerobes, homophilus species, and even Neisseria meningitidis has also been associated with, um, with arthritis. Then there's also the non-infectious, and it's important to uh, take an accurate history, think about has there been any recent trauma, uh, catheterization, um, exposure to any uh, chemicals in the urethra, even uh, some sex play has been associated with uh, urethritis or urethral discharge or burning as well, and then uh, autoimmune conditions such as reactive arthritis. So what I wanted to focus on though was uncomplicated gonococcal infection and the CDC um, says it's uncomplicated if it's a Neisseria gonorrhea infection of the urethra, cervix, pharynx, or rectum. And that's important um, to categorize that because they're all treated the same way. Um, complicated infection would be a disseminated gonococcal infection or a potential bloodstream infection or meningitis. And this is a classic gram stain showing the gram negative intracellular diplococci on a urethral smear. We diagnose it. Um, some sites still do gram stain. Um, so busy urban STD clinics still do uh, gram staining in, in uh, certain uh, locations. Culture um, is still available in some places, certainly not all. But a real mainstay are these DNA or RNA amplification tests which are known as nucleic acid amplification tests. They're very sensitive and highly specific. And uh, they've been FDA approved on use of either clinician uh, collected swabs or self-collected vaginal swabs even. And in many uh, settings, we also do uh, self-collected rectal and pharyngeal swabs. In my practice, I give the um, patient the swabs. They go to the uh, restroom and they self-collect them and they give it to the um, MA but it depends on setting to setting, but studies have shown that um, uh, people can find their own asshole and uh, <laughs> doing a, uh, a self-collected pharyngeal swab is safe and um, no difference in detection than a uh, clinician-collected pharyngeal swab. Urine specimens are also uh, good in certain settings where you may, want, may, may be collecting urine for other purposes. So gonorrhea is increasing in the United States. It's increasing in both sexes. As I mentioned, we're at the highest rate since 1992. So that's um, nearly 27 uh, years now. The, the most recent data we have from the CDC, though, is 2017. So it's not only increasing in men of sex with men, heterosexual men, but women as well. And when we look at, um, particularly in uh, men of sex with men, this is from a CDC uh, surveillance project where they look at the HIV status of men of sex with men and look at um, reported cases of different STDs. You can see that gonorrhea is actually uh, anywhere HIV negative, uninfected or infected from 8 to 12 percent 
um, in terms of pharyngeal gonorrhea, also about 8 to 10 percent, and then rectal gonorrhea, anywhere from 8 to 16 to 20 percent. So very important that people are screening extragenital sites, and the CDC recommendations are that the men of sex and men should be screened at all three anatomic sites, at least annually, and those with multiple partners three to six times a year. So my practice, usually now I'm seeing um, men about every six months, every three months if they're on prep, but I'm doing a, the full, what I call the grand slam, which is all three anatomic sites plus a syphilis test at every visit. Now the, the concern um, has been in terms of resistant, um, in terms of Neisseria gonorrhea is drug-resistant gonorrhea, particularly multi-drug-resistant gonorrhea. And you can see in the kind of, 2011, we had this peak of resistance to uh, cefixime, and the CDC changed its treatment recommendations in 2012 to use dual therapy, ceftriaxone plus azithro. We saw a declining in that resistance, but now, maybe because we're using azithro routinely, we see a dramatic increase in uh, azithromycin. So um, look for this space next year, but um, there's a good chance that azithromycin will no longer be recommended in dual therapy unless um, someone has a known chlamydial co-infection because of this drive of resistance. And we call this in the resistance world direct resistance, that the treatment of a patient with gonorrhea with azithromycin is actually contributing directly to antibiotic selection as opposed to indirect um, resistance which is driven by all our antibiotic consumption for every, everything else that we get exposed to in antibiotics in our food supply for treatment for upper respiratory infections. So as of today, the recommendations are still multi-drug treatment for gonorrhea, combination therapy of ceftriaxone plus azithromycin. In California, the law allows and the law states that you must make an effort to treat partners. So that law was updated for gonorrhea in uh, 2001 and chlamydia in 2003, but you have to make a reasonable effort to treat partners. Um, depending on what setting you're in, that may be um, telling patients to bring their partners back, that may be giving an extra prescription for dual therapy, which might be suffixing plus azithro, or that, that might be giving an um, actual medication to the partner to bring home, which we call expedited partner therapy. It's not recommended to do a test to cure when you're treating patients for gonorrhea, but retesting in three months in positive cases is recommended because the biggest risk factor for a gonococcal infection is a prior gonococcal infection. Now what's been interesting and what's been new uh, scientifically in gonorrhea um, um, testing is the use of these molecular susceptibility testing. So we're all used to HIV genotype tests. We talked about those earlier. We're used to uh, molecular tests to predict staph susceptibility that we use in the hospital called the MECA test. But now there's a new test called the gyres A test that predicts ciprofloxacin susceptibility in Neisseria gonorrhea. We implemented it in UCLA in 2015, and we saw, not surprisingly, a decrease in ceftriaxone use and an increase in ciprofloxacin use. And it's basically based on a single point mutation in the gyres A gene that reliably predicts susceptibility to ciprofloxacin. So this assay has now been approved in the, in the European Union. It's got a CE mark. It's been approved in Australia. And there's a commercial um, entity in California which also makes the test available in compliance with CLIA. And we expect maybe the next year or two we'll have FDA approval for that assay um, as well. And this just shows you some data from our implementation study at UCLA 
where prior to the assay, no one was using Cipro. After the assay was introduced, we had an increase in the use of Cipro and a decrease in ceftriaxone. So that's all I was going to say on gonorrhea. Um, I guess we're saving questions to the end, but if you have any friends you want to ask questions about, just say that. <laughs> all right. So this is a 28-year-old HIV-infected male. Is clinic for checkup. He's had one regular partner, occasional partners. He meets at various venues, including clubs um, and uh, social media. He has no symptoms. So the question is, what screening tests are appropriate in this HIV young male uh, with multiple partners? So um, the recommendations are, as I mentioned, three-site testing, the throat, rectum, and urine for the dual tests. Now, the chlamydia in the throat recommendation is somewhat soft, but because it's sold and marketed as a dual test, um, CDC has included it, but honestly, we don't know what to do with a positive chlamydia test of the throat. Most will clear on their own. There doesn't seem to be any clinical sequelae. It is transmissible, so from a public health prevention standpoint, there may be benefit to treating it, but it's uh, not a, uh, a lot of clinical significance. Syphilis testing, in my practice, I do a treponemal test first because I want to know someone's <laughs> lifetime history of syphilis infection. And then if they're treponemal uh, positive, then that gets reflexed to an RPR with a titer. If they're treponemal negative, then essentially I'm done. I know they've never been infected with syphilis. And a treponemal test, which I'll cover in a bit, usually will come up faster and be positive earlier in a new infection before an RPR. Anal pap smears, um, the jury is still out on what the clinical benefit is. There's a large trial, many of you I'm sure are aware of, called the ANCHOR trial, headed by Joel Pilevsky at UCSF, which will give us data on the uh, benefit of routine anal pap um, screening and treatment for those with abnormal pap smears. Um, there's no national guidelines that recommend routine anal pap smears. And then herpes antibody testing remains somewhat controversial. It's not routinely recommended. Um, but, you know, in someone who has some soft symptoms, perhaps, of itching, burning, redness, and it's more of a diagnostic test than a screening test, but it's not knowing what the benefit is of screening someone who has no symptoms whatsoever. So, um, you've done your screening test in this individual, um, his throat tests were negative, his urine tests were negative, but his rectal test comes back chlamydia positive which is um, probably one of the most common outcomes of these routine uh, screening tests. So the question for the group is, what is the best treatment for rectal chlamydia infection? Okay, so this is good. It's so about half said azithromycin, the other half said doxycycline. Few people said amoxicillin, which is a recommended alternative in pregnancy, and levofloxacin, which used to be a recommended alternative, is no longer uh, listed as an alternative therapy. So the uh, correct answer now is doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days, and that's based on a couple of meta-analysis. This is just one example of a meta-analysis that um, shows you that um, there's about a 20%, um, anywhere from 10 to 20% increased efficacy in terms of um, cure of rectal chlamydia infection using doxycycline versus azithromycin. 
It's not felt due to azithromycin resistance in, in chlamydia infection, but it's due to the pharmacokinetics and the delivery of the drug at the anatomic site of infection. So um, California recommendations and Seattle recommendations have been updated to recommend um, doxycycline for rectal infection, and it's likely that the upcoming CDC guidelines will be um, updated as well. All right, so moving from gonorrhea to chlamydia to the next case, a 44-year-old man with a new lesion near his anus. These are the examiner's glove fingers, because remember, this can be um, infectious from skin-to-skin -skin contact. And you see this indurated, uh, raised, uh, rubbery lesion with a relatively clean base. Um, differential diagnosis, you might be thinking about herpes, but it's painless, although sometimes it gets super infected and can be painful. Primary syphilis, you're certainly top of your list. Chancroid, which is always on the test, but extremely rare. We have a couple cases a year in South Carolina, but you know, honestly in California, I don't think there's been a true positive uh, chancroid case in more than 20 years. But more commonly, other things like fixed drug reactions, non-steroidals, doxycycline can cause these types of mucosal um, genital lesions, staph or strep infections, and autoimmune conditions uh, that you're familiar with. So this is a dark field from that lesion, and you can see the characteristic spirochete of T. pallidum pallidum, which is the uh, organism that causes syphilis. So these are some other, uh, some atypical and uh, shankers. Uh, so on your kind of uh, upper, upper left, it's a little bit angry, more chancroid kind of appearing, but these are all dark field positive for uh, T. pallidum. Your more typical one is in your lower left, kind of at that area of the sulcus, particularly when you roll back the foreskin. And because it's painless, unless you do an exam, you may not actually appreciate the uh, lesion. And then they also can be shallow and sometimes a little bit more her um, herpetic appearing. There can be co-infections, dual infections of syphilis and herpes. But again, all these were dark field positive uh, for uh, syphilis. And then, typically, that lesion appears about three weeks after sexual contact. Everyone's concerned about that. Well, the patient's concerned about that. They worry about it. They worry about it enough, and it goes away. And then, six to eight weeks later, typically, they'll, they'll present uh, urgent care, or maybe your clinical office, with a rash, fever, swollen glands, fatigue. And you'll be thinking, okay, viral infection, contact dermatitis, pityriasis, rosea, you know, what could this be? Um, you'll look on the hands and, and um, soles of the feet, you'll see these coppery, kind of ring-like, diamond, nickel-sized lesions. We call these nickel-dime lesions on the palms and soles um, of the feet. And then you may, if, if um, depending on the presentation, see these other types of secondary lesions associated with syphilis, something called a split papule, which looks like oral herpes labialis. You may see um, um, alopecia, and this is actually uh, fairly common in secondary syphilis. You may see these mucus patches or these kind of wettish, uh, whitish lesions on the, um, on, on the tongue, which could easily be misdiagnosed as oral thrush, oral candidiasis, or um, oral hairy leukoplakia. And then around the anus or the um, vagina, you can often see um, these also these um, condyloma lata or these raised lesions, and that's typically what we consider highly infectious lesions of secondary syphilis. Uh, but it's because of the oral lesions, we also believe it's very contagious through oral sex, 
and why um, there's a lot of uh, exposure and somewhat accelerating the current epidemic. Late syphilis, no signs or symptoms. So the only way to make a diagnosis, <laughs> only way to make a diagnosis of late syphilis is through blood testing. And that's why it's important to remember uh, how the syphilis tests work and which ones are which, the non-trepanemal, which currently the really only ones available are the RPR and the VDRL, and that's the antibody to cardiolipin, that's the one that goes up and down with therapy. It's the fourfold change, either fourfold rise or fourfold decline that we consider clinically significant. Highly specific, but false positives can occur in injection drug users, those with autoimmune diseases, those who have been recently vaccinated. Um, and then it's the more specific test, the treponemal test, which detects specific antibodies to treponemal antigen. But now there's a variety of commercial assays from the FDA, the TPPA, and EIA, CIA, and a rapid point of care treponemal test that's also available that detects the antibody of treponemal antigen. Again, it's more sensitive. So if you're highly suspicious of someone with syphilis infection, it's important to get both tests because um, your RPR may be negative in uh, primary uh, syphilis. The treponemal test traditionally is the one that we used to teach stays positive for life. More, more recent data shows that if you treat people early, they can actually lose that treponemal positivity um, over time. And that's the test that indicates past or present um, infection, so you can't really tell unless you have better history uh, when someone was infected if they're only treponemal test positive. In my practice, I usually end up treating those people, giving them the benefit of the doubt um, if they can't give me a history of treatment. Syphilis and HIV infection, there's some unique characteristics in terms of there have been case reports that people can have primary lesions and secondary lesions at the same time. Generally a slower, tighter decline, so we give people a longer time before we determine whether they were treatment failures or not. However, good data now that there's no uh, difference in therapeutic response, and there is an important increased risk for neurosyphilis, and that's why every new case of syphilis should have a targeted neurologic exam where you're asking people about any visual signs or symptoms, any hearing loss, and doing some you know, basic assessment of their pupillary reactivity and their balance just to do a quick neuro um, evaluation. Treatment hasn't changed, although it may be harder to, to get and the price has definitely gone up. Um, a single intramuscular injection, 2.4 million units of benzathine penicillin is still the recommended uh, therapy and prophylactic treatment is an important part of our control effort. So again, just like gonorrhea and chlamydia, it's incumbent upon physicians to notify um, partners, to uh, recommend that their patients notify recent partners, to bring them in for prophylactic therapy. And it's, it's not recommended to test that partner and see if they're infected and then wait to treat them. Because you want to abort the infection. That's why you're giving prophylactic preventive therapy. You want to treat them before they become seropositive and before they develop any potential uh, 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 complications. Now, as I mentioned, we have been having some challenges with, with bisillin availability and bisillin pricing. So I, uh, this is a little advertisement for IDSA. I work with IDSA, so if you have any cases like that, please let me know or just write it down because we're trying to work with uh, the manufacturer to solve that problem. 
Um, th these were good data from a randomized uh, uh, clinical trial of HIV-infected uh, individuals who were treated with one dose versus three doses of benzathine penicillin, and it was concluded that there was no difference in treatment response or, or treatment outcome. So some providers still feel like HIV-infected and suppressed, we need to give three doses. The data don't support that, and the recommendations uh, state one dose for early syphilis is sufficient. So, um, lumbar puncture. What are recommended indications for a lumbar puncture in a patient with syphilis? So, RPR titer, less than greater than 1 to 32, 11%, CD4, 2%, uh, visual changes with the most common, and, and headache, and visual changes is what's recommended by the uh, CDC. So, while um, the uh, elevated RPR or HIV infection or immune suppression are associated with increased risk for neurosyphilis, they're not indications of themselves for CSF. Analysis, the CDC recommendations are neurologic symptoms or signs, which would be visual changes, suspected ocular or otic syphilis, uh, treatment failure, um, or any evidence of tertiary syphilis. So I forgot to ask um, the case with the pulmonary disease if they, uh, well, I, I, I wasn't convinced that was really tertiary syphilis. Those weren't gumma. I think those were inflammatory lesions in early syphilis. But if you truly diagnose gumma, um, of tertiary syphilis, there should be a uh, lumbar puncture as well. So syphilis, we're at a highest rate uh, since um, 1993. You can see this chart, which looks at primary and secondary syphilis, which are newly acquired cases of uh, syphilis. It's rising the fastest in men with sex with men, but it's also rising in heterosexual men. And most unfortunately, probably it's rising in women of reproductive age as well. Um, in 2017, there were over 900 cases of congenital syphilis in the United States, compared to fewer than 200 cases of perinatal transmission of HIV. So we're doing a great job at preventing mother-child HIV, but we're doing a, a lousy job at preventing congenital syphilis. And um, a lot of that has to do with provider awareness with our healthcare systems, with um, access to uh, prenatal care and follow-up of the positive uh, test. So we, we definitely need, need to be doing better. And then I'm going to uh, wrap up with some um, recent um, data that um, will kind of give us some hope, uh, I think, in terms of our uh, ability to uh, prevent control syphilis. So this was a study I did with Bob Bolin of the uh, Los Angeles LGBT Center here a couple of years ago now where we um, did a small pilot study among 30 men and we randomly assigned those 30 men to a behavioral intervention where we gave them a gift card for when they came back for their follow-up and were STD-free uh, versus uh, uh, prescribing daily doxycycline. And uh, uh, we found that the daily doxycycline group had actually a 73% reduced risk of acquisition of any STI and importantly about a 75% uh, reduced risk of acquisition of syphilis. So the, these pilot data were uh, exciting 
to us and uh, fortunately exciting to others in the field, um, particularly um, Jean-Michel Molina, uh, famous for the ANRS Ypres-Gay uh, trial on PrEP, who also did a doxycycline chemoprophylaxis uh, study, but did it differently than doxycycline once a day. He assigned his intervention arm to 200 milligrams once of doxycycline after sex no more than uh, three times a week. So similarly to the on-demand schedule for PrEP for HIV, this was kind of an on-demand schedule for PrEP for um, prophylaxis of bacterial STIs and found the same 73% reduction with the use of 200 milligrams doxycycline um, after sex. So based on these data, now there are four trials internationally. There's a large, um, one domestically in the United States, funded by the NIH and led by um, uh, researchers at the University of Washington and UCSF. There's a large randomized controlled trial in Sydney and Melbourne. There's some um, uh, smaller kind of trials in British Columbia. And there's also a uh, kind of follow-up trial in uh, Paris um, as well. And uh, we, you know, we're cautiously optimistic about what the data will tell us. There are definitely concerns about resistance and is you know, routine exposure to doxycycline going to drive resistance in either these organisms or other organisms. Um, doxycycline has been available since the 1950s. Um, there's been no resistance to T. pallidum um, ever seen uh, associated with doxycycline or tetracycline could be um, a concern for chlamydia, but again, there's been no resistance in chlamydia trachomatis to doxycycline. So some organisms, if they become resistant, they don't become viable. So that may have, um, they have to do with why those organisms have not, not developed resistance. There's definitely resistance to doxycycline in Neisseria gonorrhea, but we wouldn't be proposing this for Neisseria gonorrhea uh, prophylaxis. There's some other concerns also, um, as we talked earlier today about weight gain, and there has been some association with um, small amounts of weight gain and people who use doxycycline uh, chronically. Um, so wait and see, and we'll have some more data in our um, upcoming um, presentations in the future. So the, my, my go-to sources, uh, the CDC treatment guidelines, it's the most commonly used uh, reference for STD management issues in the United States. Um, it's your really go-to source. It's updated every five years. There's an update that has just started, so that'll be come out with new information in 2020. And I'll give a shameless plug for my own book uh, called the SD, Current STD uh, Textbook. And uh, we'll open it up to questions and answers. Thank you very much. So please feel free to go to the microphones if you want to ask questions directly. And any questions? Uh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, OK, so let's start out with um, what criteria do you use to exclude CNS disease on LP? Right, so the question is what criteria does one use uh, once you do have an LP to look at the uh, cell count chemistry and the VDRL. So uh, the VDRL is, is not 100% um, sensitive, uh, which is probably what this question gets at somewhat. So a negative uh, VDRL 
does not, uh, with certainty, exclude uh, neurosyphilis. So we generally rely on the uh, on the cell count and the uh, protein. So a normal cell count, we would say, would exclude uh, neurosyphilis. Um, uh, there was a I forget the historic uh, neurosyphilis expert from uh, Oregon, but he would say you can't have neurosyphilis without some inflammation. So if you have a normal uh, CSF white count, you cannot have neurosyphilis. Okay, another good question. Um, this author of the question has heard that GC in the throat is not contagious. Is that wrong? So interesting question. So whether or not serogonary infection of the throat uh, is contagious. So uh, the Australians certainly think it is, and there's a lot of evidence coming from Australia now actually about oral-to-oral -oral transmission through uh, through either deep kissing or the use of uh, saliva as a uh, sexual lubricant. Um, from San Francisco, from studies we did, we also found that there were uh, men and their only phenol exposure was from uh, someone else performing oral sex. So it's generally well accepted that um, oral infections with necessary gonorrhea are transmissible and um, highly transmissible from the oral pharynx to the penis. How transmissible they are from oral to oral contact uh, remains to be seen. Um, so, I know you said a few words about this, but uh, one member of our audience has a question about recommended treatment for mycoplasma genitalium. Other countries have reported resistance to almost all antibiotics. Yes, so mycoplasma genitalium, one of the challenges of diagnosing it is you have to treat it. Um, so we were blissfully ignoring it for, for many years, and now we have an FDA-approved test, which means they'll be marketing the test, and there'll be more awareness about it, both to our patients and to our fellow providers, and then, and then how, how do you treat it? So um, traditionally, the first-line therapy was azithromycin, but in, in multiple settings, resistance ranges from anywhere from 20 to 80 percent. So um, people have been using uh, a, a, a stepwise approach of actually doxycycline for seven days, then followed by um, azithromycin. And then some people have been using higher, longer doses of azithromycin, like an azithromycin Z-Pak. So 500 on day one, and then 250 milligrams on subsequent days. And that seems to be associated with uh, better clinical outcomes. So I'm eager to see what my colleagues at CDC have to say with what their treatment recommendations uh, will be. But we definitely have to um, stay up on that and see what the current recommendations are. Lastly, um, there is um, there are diagnostic assays the same way I mentioned about this gyrase assay that predicts ciprofloxacin susceptibility. There are mycoplasma assays that predict azithromycin susceptibility, and there was a um, really um, encouraging report that by the use of that assay, they actually had above 90% cure because they avoided the use of azithromycin when they had to. And then in, um, in, in cases when you can't use azithromycin or doxycycline, sometimes we use moxifloxacin, which um, uh, for a seven to 10 day course has also been shown to be effective. Okay, lots of questions for you. So, um, how long does GC uh, infection, I'm assuming they mean diagnostic tests, um, how long after a sexual exposure 
Can you remain positive and one, do you remain positive for more than a year or do you have any data on that? All right, so question about um, if someone's been infected, how long will they be infected before they naturally clear the infection? So Linda Barbie, uh, who's the uh, clinic director for the King County uh, Seattle STD Clinic is doing a study on that uh, right now and um, she shared some duration of uh, positivity data with us, with those with un untreated infection, and it's definitely a couple months, but it's not more than uh, four months. So somewhere between about two and three months, people can carry the infection before they naturally uh, clear it. Okay, another gonorrhea in question. Uh, in Japan and other Southeast Asia countries, ceftriaxone MICs are high enough that they're using one gram for treatment of gonorrhea we see rising MICs to ceftriaxone here, and some reports of treatment failure for pharyngeal gonorrhea. Is that because tissue penetration is poor? Yeah, so I would say true, false, true uh, in, terms of the pre in terms of the premise of the question. So true in Japan, they're using one gram um, IM doses, and the British guidelines uh, just went up to one gram um, IM dose as well. Um, but in the United States, actually, our ceftriaxone has not been going up. It's been um, steady and low, so it'd still be the uh, recommended therapy. Um, I can't predict uh, what we're going to do at CDC this June, whether we're going to go up on the recommended dose from 250 to 500 um, or not. Um, and definitely it's an issue in the pharynx where we get uh, lower uh, drug concentrations. That said, the clinical studies that have looked at the efficacy of 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone have shown in the pharynx a higher than 97% cure rate. So the cure rate is uh, very good and it's not recommended to do a test of cure if you're treating someone with ceftriaxone. Very good. I think this is our last sort of GC urethritis related questions. Have you um, implemented doxy on demand in your clinic and if yes who are the type of clients you've been giving it to and what are your challenges right so the question is implements a broad word so I, I would say used and uh, so I have used it in a, in a, in a few patients um, I'd say one had heard about it um, in the kind of general media and um, two others had uh, two episodes of syphilis in a year and, and some other episodes of rectal chlamydia infection, and I talked to them about the potential benefits of it. Um, so one's on a daily, um, actually two are on the doxycycline, 100 milligrams every day, and one of the, the third one is on on-demand. And uh, we have seen some surveys um, in San Francisco and some other uh, parts of the country that there's a few percent of the general population of, of men of sex and men at high risk who are using doxycycline. So people are starting to hear about it. I think people appropriately are waiting for the evidence to come forth and um, none of the you know re advisory re recommendations or the groups that make recommendations are ready to come forth until we have some more data um, on the efficacy and safety. So along a similar line with advisory recommendations, some HIV uh, academic treaters have been promoting anal pap smears to prevent anal carcinoma, and they feel that all clinicians should be doing this. Um, what are your thoughts on that, despite not having results from the study yet? 
Right, so my personal thoughts, I'm on the uh, con side, so I've been in debates uh, with uh, Dr. Klefsky, Professor Klefsky, and he's taken the pro side, I've taken the con side. I think, you know, you always have to be cautious about screening for uh, pre-cancer, cancerous lesions. You are, you know, potentially stigmatizing someone with a cancer or pre-cancer diagnosis for the rest of their life. Um, the treatments are not benign by any means. The um, occurrence rates of abnormal PAPs or, or high-grade uh, lesions in PAPs are, are high. Um, so I've been you know, waiting for the evidence to really show the benefit. Again, there's no national recommendations. New York State guidelines does uh, recommend it, but um, no other group really has uh, recommended it. People are waiting for the evidence. I think we've seen a shift in practice um, from a lot of different providers, um, you know, in terms of what people usually do. So there's some providers that still believe it's very important and valuable, um, but I think people are doing a little bit less now than they were five years ago. Okay. Um, this, I think, is just a clarification for one of your uh, slides in discussion. So treatment for rectal GC and chlamydia co-infection no longer includes azithromycin, is that correct? Right, so based on the interpretation of those recommendations, you would treat uh, rectal dual infection with ceftriaxone plus doxycycline, and you would need to use the um, azithromycin. And the doxycycline would be the preferred agent for the rectal chlamydia infections. Okay, and the last few questions have to do with syphilis. Is there any way to differentiate between a diagnosis of latent syphilis and prior childhood yaws infection? Oh, who has prior childhood yaws infection? I guess. <laughs> I was going to ask that question. I don't know if so whoever asked it wants to tell uh, us. You know, endemic uh, trepanematosis, nonvenereal <laughs> trepanemal disease. It occurs in you know Central um, America, some parts of Northern uh, South America still. Um, but the answer is no. So um, people who've been infected with the other treponemal pallidum uh, subspecies um, will have a reactive treponemal pallidum um, antibody test. So, um, you know, well, most of us, if we can't rule out uh, syphilis, have to give the patient the benefit of the doubt some way and treat them. Um, and then unfortunately, because it's kind of late and unknown duration, they have to get three shots of penicillin, and then you just, you know, remind them that you've been treated, you know, when this comes up again and again and again, and it will, you have to tell them you've been treated and you don't need any further treatment. Well, speaking of coming up again and again, what do you do when a patient has several negative RPRs in a row and then converts an RPR titer to one-to-one? Do you repeat that, or do you uh, treat it, or do you do something different? And what if it's still one-to-one -one if you do repeat it? Right, so go, I mean, going from non-reactive to reactive to one-to-one, -one, remember that there's an intermediate there called weakly reactive. So um, it, it is a, tr a true reactive test, so you know, I would try to ascertain some sexual history, and if there's been uh, exposure, I would treat the individual. If there's you know, just no evidence of exposure or denial of any type of exposure, I would uh, repeat the test. Um, but you know, it, it's more common to go from one to one to one to two or bounce around in the low positives than really go from non-reactive to reactive. Okay, and benzathine penicillin CNS levels, does it work for CNS infection? 
Yeah, so generally it's not. Might. So why, why benzathine penicillin works for, for syphilis, it's in this you know, viscous, kind of oily, that whitish liquid. Um, so it's like a depot injection into the muscle and it just stays there for you know, a week to 14 days actually and it slowly leaches out and you get very low but prolonged levels and um, the data shows you really don't get adequate CNS levels, which is why you need to treat CNS infection with intravenous uh, crystalline penicillin G and give it you know, almost around the clock continuously or every four hours for the full, uh, for the full 14 days. I do want to mention it's recommended after someone gets that 14 days of IV therapy, they're supposed to get another shot of benzathine penicillin on the way out the door. Um, the thought there is that, you know, for whatever reason that put them at risk for neurosyphilis, they could benefit from the additional uh, penicillin to prevent relapse, although that's not really well evidence-based. And then last question, um, any update on vaccine for syphilis? Um, unfortunately, no. So there's only really uh, four, you know, syphilis groups uh, funded in the United States on uh, syphilis vaccine. Uh, we meet with NIH on a every year, every other year basis to try to see where we are, see where we are, and, and push the agenda. Um, but you know, there really just not has been not been a lot of uh, momentum there. I mean, there was a vaccine that was. Um, invented also at, at UCLA in the 1950s. It was 60 uh, immunizations. Um, that, 60? That, that 60 immunizations given about over a three-month period, and it worked really well in rabbits. I think I'd rather have syphilis. <laughs> so we, we did have a vaccine that protected rabbits. <laughs> But no, but, but that but that was never moved into humans for obvious reasons, and um, we're still you know not really on a great pathway to develop the syphilis vaccine. Okay, well those are all of our questions, so uh, we're out of time for this session. So thank you very right. much for thank a you. wonderful tour of SPI.